Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, an ear, nose, and throat doctor shares his area of expertise, jaw reconstruction. This is a broad category and I think would include things like a repair of fractures if someone were to break their jaw from a, from a trauma. An emergency management expert explains what you can learn from what goes into the emergency planning for various events. With our training coordination, we really try to focus on the assessed needs of our region, which are uh, put together every year and tracked every year by our um, regional New York State Department of Health office. And an Upstate College of Medicine graduate talks about his humanitarian work related to health care access and health disparity reduction. We have an unequal health care system. Some are in and some are out, and that, on top of it, is inequitable. All that in a selection from The Healing Muse, coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll learn about what goes into emergency preparations for special events. Then we'll talk with an Upstate College of Medicine graduate who's passionate about improving healthcare access and reducing healthcare disparities. But first, we'll hear from an ear, nose, and throat doctor about jaw reconstruction. Today's topic is jaw reconstruction, and with me in the HealthLink on Air studio is Dr. Jesse Ryan. He's an assistant professor of otolaryngology and communication sciences with expertise in jaw reconstruction. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So happy to be here. Thanks. Well, let's um, start by defining what the jaw includes. Are we talking about the bone above and below the mouth, basically? Uh, yes, yeah, absolutely. So the, the lower jaw bone is called the mandible, and the upper jaw bone called the maxilla. And those are the, the two bones that uh, house the teeth and, and make up the uh, anatomy of this topic. Yeah. So, and, and it goes, the jaw goes further back than just the mouth though, right? It goes back to almost like the ears or something? Right, the jaw connects uh, in front of your ears. That's what um, people know as the temporomandibular joint or TMJ. Uh, a lot of people have have occasional pain or, or issues with that, that joint and that's right in front of the ear. Okay, so that's part of what you do. Uh, now let's talk about the types of jaw reconstruction. Right, so that's, this is a broad category and I think would include things like a repair of fractures if someone were to break their jaw from a, from a trauma or from a fall. Um, would include some set of surgeries that oral surgeons tend to do that involve repositioning of the jaws to help the teeth better align um, as part of the process of shifting teeth with braces. Um, and then also some surgeries on that temporomandibular joint, also typically done by uh, oral surgeons um, to address pain or chronic uh, inflammation or infections. Um, and, then, and then today, uh, we'll probably be talking a little bit more about a, a smaller set of surgeries, but uh, a major reconstructive surgery of the, of the jaw when a piece is missing, um, typically uh, related to a, to a cancer of the mouth. Oh, okay. So uh, cancer or uh, I guess with the severe trauma maybe or something. But. Right. Uh, a, a severe trauma like a gunshot wound or an explosion could cause a, a piece of the jaw uh, to be missing that would require one of these major reconstructive surgeries. Are there many people that need um, sort of extensive jaw reconstruction? I mean, the things we've described just now seem like kind of rare, but... Right. Thankfully, these are, are relatively rare problems. Um, at an institution our size, we may uh, deal with five to ten of these patients in a year. Um, even lar much larger institutions might only see, you know, ten or twenty a year. Um, so thankfully, it's a rare problem. So historically, what has been done for people who are missing a portion of their jawbone? Well, this is, has been a major uh, problem for this subset of the population for, for decades or really centuries uh, since cancer surgery or, or since trauma has, has happened. And initially there was very little that could be done. Uh, there's a, well, I don't know how famous anymore, but a somewhat famous comic strip character from actually the early to mid um, 20th century named Andy Gump, who is a character who's missing his chin. And, and that's essentially what 
would happen if you needed to remove the front portion of the jaw and, and didn't replace it with bone, you would just be missing your chin with um, really tremendous uh, cosmetic um, problems and difficulty speaking and swallowing. So in, in the case of this Andy Gump character, I think it was um, he had an infection from a tooth extraction, like a dental thing that caused him to have to lose that area. So, uh, Yeah, it, I think uh, they crafted a story around it, although um, typically you, you wouldn't end up losing your jaw from a, from a, from a tooth infection. So is it more than a cosmetic issue? Right. The front part of the jaw is especially uh, very important for positioning uh, the tongue and important for speech and swallowing function. So we do feel like it's very important to replace the bone that is missing. Um, uh, in the mid part of the last century, um, some techniques improved where we would at least be able to put a titanium plate across the gap of missing bone and cover that with skin or muscle in an attempt to preserve some of the structure, um, although these procedures were also fraught with problems in terms of infection and eventually exposure of that plate with time. So uh, what else has been done? Like, have there been advances since the titanium? Yeah, thankfully, um, in the 1970s, there was a tremendous advance in reconstructive surgery uh, that was a technique to use microvascular reconstruction and essentially transplant tissue from another part of the body uh, to help fix a defect and to help match what is missing uh, with the type of tissue, be that skin or muscle or bone. And these are called uh, free tissue transfers um, or free tissue transplants. And that development uh, has shifted to jaw reconstruction and starting in uh, the first one, 1989, uh, leg, a portion of a leg bone has been used to reconstruct the jaw by reshaping it and also sewing the blood vessels connected into uh, new blood vessels in the neck to provide, um, provide healthy blood to that tissue to enable it to survive. So microvascular free tissue transfer is used for, in other surgical applications, not just right. for jaw. It started... It, it certainly started even in other applications, and it's used uh, all over the body by um, reconstructive surgeons, both plastic surgeons, uh, uh, head and neck surgeons, um, orthopedic surgeons use it uh, as well, those who have specialized training in, in these procedures to help fix, um, fix problems all over, whether it's uh, coverage from a traumatic wound or, or often a cancer surgery or... Um, or functional reconstruction, those procedures in many cases have become so successful that that's broadened their uh, list of potential applications. So is the thinking that it's coming from the same person, so it'll, like, there's not going to be a rejection or something from the body because it's, it's, the body is just moved to a different location, right? That's exactly right. So you don't deal with any uh, of the rejection risks that you do when you think of, oh, someone's having a kidney transplant, uh, or needing to be on immunosuppressive medications. So since it's from your own body, um, that's not a risk at all. The, the risks have to do with uh, the size of the blood vessels being connected are often somewhere between one and three millimeters. So there's a, there is a risk of, of clotting um, or other problems. But overall, the success rate of these surgeries is somewhere around 95%. Wow. And, and you mentioned blood vessels. There, I mean, there's, you have to attach every blood vessel, right? To so typically, uh, at least one artery and one um, vein, sometimes more than one vein. And the arteries are connected with very small suture, uh, typically smaller than a human hair. Um, and then the veins are connected either with the same suture or there are some, um, there are some coupling devices that are used to, uh, to help attach the vein as well. Well, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Jesse Ryan. He's an ear, nose, and throat doctor who specializes in jaw reconstruction. So what I wanted to have you do is sort of walk me through, if I was a patient um, who needed lower jaw reconstruction, what, what, how would you kind of tell me to prepare for this? What would, what would it be in store for me? Right. So let's, uh, let's pretend you're uh, a patient with a, with a mouth cancer that's going to require um, 
uh, a segment of the jaw to be removed. And typically we'll work with a team of surgeons. So one surgeon will address the cancer portion. One of my partners will do that. And uh, I'll focus on the reconstructive portion of the surgery. And so from the reconstructive side, uh, we would start with getting um, high-level imaging of the bones of the jaw using a CT scan and also checking the blood supply to the bones of the leg using another CT scan. And then we would take this information and we partner with uh, some engineering companies and they uh, put the CT scans on their software and over a conference call looking at the scans together they create a three-dimensional model and we're able to uh, do a virtual surgery on the bone and decide uh, the surgeon doing the cancer piece can decide exactly where he or she wants to make the cuts in the bone, how much bone to remove. And once those decisions are made, we can uh, decide how to reshape this uh, leg bone, which is the fibula bone, or the non-weight-bearing bone of the, of the outside of the leg. So why do you choose the leg bone instead of, I don't know, the arm or something else? Great question. The, uh, there have been several other places that have been uh, from the body that have been used over time. Um, one is a portion of the hip bone was used initially, uh, but that procedure had a more difficult recovery for patients in terms of uh, pain or risk for the patients and is a more uh, challenging um, procedure in terms of getting that bone out to use in the jaw. Uh, the leg bone fits pretty well in terms of the uh, size that's needed and the strength that's needed to reconstruct the jaw. It provides a fairly long piece of bone that your body doesn't truly need. Most of our patients are a little bit older. If you were running marathons, you might notice a difference, but over time, in terms of normal activity, um, you really don't need the middle section of this bone. We leave the top portion and the bottom portion of the bone, which helps stabilize the knee and the ankle. Um, so I'd so, still be able to walk afterwards. Right, yep, you can walk normally afterwards. Um, uh, and, and other sites, for instance, the arm, the two bones in the arm are, are more are required to be connected for normal arm function. There, there is a way to take a portion of the arm bone, uh, but it ends up being a fairly small piece of bone that's not uh, best for, for jaw reconstruction in most cases. And uh, similarly for the, for instance, the portion of the shoulder blade, it can be used for bone reconstruction, but it doesn't, uh, the shape doesn't tend to fit quite as well. So the key is though that you have to take part of this leg bone and, and shape it into the, pla the bone that you're taking out of the jaw, right? Right. This is a, a three-dimensional problem. And uh, one of the advances with computer modeling is that it truly enables us to address the three-dimensional problem in a three-dimensional way. Um, historically, we used things like popsicle sticks that were sterilized or other uh, two-dimensional objects to try to shape and, and design a, a reconstruction for the jawbone. Uh, but if you're doing it in real time, you, you really only get one shot at it. Uh, and one of the advantages of doing a virtual surgery is, is you can look at a reconstruction several different ways on the computer and ask the engineer to you know, uh, change one piece or make it longer or shorter, and you get actual dimensions um, so that, that you can choose the best option uh, for the patient's reconstruction. So a, a practice run before you actually... Exactly true. Exactly true. Uh, and then part of the, the reconstruction, then will uh, the company will generate... Um, both some 3D printed uh, pieces of material to help use during surgery to help uh, help make the cuts on the bone and the reconstruction exactly where we intended them to be from the uh, computer surgery. So is this two surgeries where you go in and take the leg bone one day and then go back another day to do the jaw, or is it all done together? This is all done at the same time. So the cancer surgery would be done first, and then the uh, the reconstruction would be done the same day. And um, So it's a long day. It's a full-day surgery, typically. So tell me what recovery is like for the patient. For a patient with this extensive problem, the recovery is significant. They're typically in the hospital for a week or a little bit longer. Um, their overall recovery is on the order of, of weeks to months. Um, but in the, in the long run, in the, in the months to years run, uh, the expectation is that many of these patients will have a 
a full recovery in terms of normal uh, walking and um, trying to achieve a normal diet, normal speech. So initially, though, I mean, because you're working on the jaw area, are they able to eat by mouth? Initially, we, we typically keep them uh, fed through a temporary nasal feeding tube for a couple weeks uh, until they're ready to, to eat by mouth again. And what about, like, talking? Will they be able to speak after the surgery? Uh, assuming their tongue wasn't involved in the surgery, then uh, they, they're able to speak um, after the surgery. Does, um, does their voice change at all? Uh, not so much with just the jaw reconstruction. Many of these patients also have a portion of the mouth on the inside if it's a cancer problem, and, and their um, outcomes in terms of speech and swallowing really depend on how much of the inside of the mouth is involved. And in terms of appearance, does, um, I mean, when you talk about a reconstructive surgery, I think of things being changed, but does a person look differently after this? You know, there, after the healing. There are scars on the outside that tend to heal well, but uh, no, they tend to have a pretty normal appearance afterward. That's the goal is to reshape the jawbone in as close to normal a uh, way as possible. Neat. Well, this is very fascinating. I appreciate you sharing the information. Thank you so much for inviting me to be here. My guest has been ear, nose, and throat doctor Jesse Ryan from Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, preparing for emergencies on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. When emergencies happen, we expect timely and streamlined assistance. Today, we're going to take a little bit of a look behind the scenes of one of the people involved in planning for emergencies. With me in the studio is Upstate's Kelsey Wagner. She's the program coordinator for the Central New York Regional Training Center. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So there are many different types of emergencies. Um, I'm thinking natural disasters caused by weather, um, car crashes involving multiple cars, disease outbreaks. What do you focus on at the Central New York Regional Training Center? Um, at the Central New York Regional Training Center, our focus is, of course, on the Central New York region as a whole, um, which is comprised of 14 different counties. We stretch from the Canadian border to the Pennsylvania border. Um, so it's a very large and very diverse region. So with our um, training coordination, we really try to focus on the assessed needs of our region, um, which are uh, put together every year and tracked every year by our um, regional New York State Department of Health office. So we really try to base things on that and also on um, just, I don't want to say word of mouth, but being out in the community, being out in our quarterly um, regional meetings, it, I, you really get a good feel for um, what the, we call them HEPIC partners, which I'll explain more about later, um, feel the region needs. So, you, may, I mean, there is great diversity from rural, very rural, to mm -hmm. more urban and everything in between. Um, what are the needs in this vast region for, in terms of emergency planning? We can all think about weather because all of that, the region gets weather. Mm -hmm. um, what are some other things that have been identified? Right now, a huge focus for us is um, the Stop the Bleed initiative. And Stop the Bleed is a course that focuses on bleeding control, uh, specifically for mass fatality incidents, you know, active shooter, things of that nature. Um, obviously, with things going on, not even just obviously in this region, but in the world as a whole right now, that's really a huge focus for us. Um, here at this facility, we coordinate with Upstate Trauma. They provide the training, and we, you know, provide some of the resources for that. Um, Another big focus this year is emergency planning for inclusive communities, particularly in rural environments, and that focuses on emergency planning for people with um, diverse and special needs and how we can plan um, to best help them in an emergency situation, particularly in rural and very urban environments because 
both pose very unique challenges. What do you mean by inclusive communities? Um, inclusive communities just means um, that we really want to focus on providing the best care and resources in emergency situation for people of all walks of life, people of different economic and social okay. stations, people with different physical or mental needs, um, intellectual So no one gets left yeah, out. From, exactly. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. So how do they, how do they go about deciding what the needs are? Is it just sort of being in touch with what's going on um, nationally and that, what could become a threat or that that's definitely a huge part of it and i feel like a lot of the requests for specific courses or topics that we get um are from people you know just seeing what's going on in the world and feeling that this region needs to be prepared for these events um but i think a lot of it really does come from um more just what our region needs in general i know like based on um, conversations with the other RTCs in the state, because there are three other RTCs. Um, while there are a lot of needs that kind of universally carry over, despite region, uh, there are some who are, there are some needs who are, that are very unique to our region as well. Specific. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned there, okay, there's four um, regional training centers. How did, how did Central New York Regional Training Center get its start? It's kind of a long story. Okay. <laughs> but um, in 2012, the federal guidance required states to develop healthcare coalitions. So the New York State Department of Health Office of Health Emergency Preparedness, which we refer to as OHEP, um, introduced a revised structure reducing the eight, they were called regional resource centers, to four coalition areas. And the four coalition areas are what we refer to as HEPICs, which is, stands for Health Emergency Preparedness Coalitions. Each coalition is led by the New York State Department of Health Regional Office Director for that region. Um, and the core fo a little more background on the HEPICs. The core focus of the HEPICs is on integrating and coordinating emergency support functions and activities as they apply specifically to healthcare and public health emergency planning and response, not just like generalized, but we more focus on healthcare response and public health. And um, each HEPIC has a regional training center. Okay. Um, so there's one, University of Rochester Medical Center hosts the Finger Lakes and Western region. Albany Medical Center hosts the Capital District RTC. Uh, Stony Brook University Hospital hosts the Metropolitan Area Region. We call it Marrow RTC. And then in 2017, SUNY Upstate uh, was selected to have the Regional Training Center for the Central New York Epic Region. Here at Upstate? Here at Upstate. In Syracuse? Yep. Okay. And basically our role, we're a totally grant-funded entity. And at the RTC, we're tasked with identifying, coordinating, developing, um, delivering, and evaluating emergency preparedness training for members of the HEPIC. Um, and members of the HEPIC include hospitals, uh, county agencies, long-term cares, home care agencies, and um, other healthcare entities within the region. Okay. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Kelsey Wagner. She's the program coordinator for the Central New York Regional Training Center, and she's located here at Upstate. Now, these organizations, the um, Health Emergency Preparedness Coalitions, or the CNY, or the RTCs across the state, how do these work uh, together to improve the preparedness in Central New York? Um, we definitely... All the RTCs and HEPIC members, we act as major resources for one another, um, and it it helps to really facilitate an open discussion between HEPIC partners, between RTCs, regarding the unique needs of each region and the state as a whole, as well as the subregions that make up, like the Central New York region or the Finger Lakes region. Um, for RTCs in general, I think we really assist and facilitate these partnerships uh, through the coordination of training initiatives based on the assessed regional needs. And um, we're able through the grant to provide financial support for scholarships, for training equipment, and expenses associated with courses, which is huge. Um, just this last grant year, we were able to purchase eFind scanners. eFinds is um, essentially a tracking initiative, would be the easiest way to describe it. When um, large facilities are forced to evacuate, like say upstate had to evacuate in order to track patients. Um, a bracelet is placed on the patient and they're 
information is entered into the computer to match up with that barcode. It's scanned when they leave here and it's scanned when they arrive at a facility so that um, people can locate family members, people can locate patients, and someone isn't lost in the chaos. Um, but we were able to purchase scanners for facilities in the region. I mean, there were very, very large facilities that had one scanner for the whole facility. Um, so it was just nice to be able to um, take a major training initiative, provide the course, and then be able to provide more equipment. So e-find scanners, I have not heard of that before. Yeah, um, outside of emergency planning and preparedness, I really have not stumbled across a lot of people that have heard of it. I certainly had it. And it became mandated after Hurricane Sandy because there were, unfortunately, a lot of um, nursing home patients or residents that they weren't sure where they went to because it was so chaotic. And with the evacuation, people just went wherever could take them. Sure. Um, so that was something that the governor mandated following Sandy, and this was the program that came out of that mandate. So it would be used in the event of an evacuation would mm -hmm. be the only reason you would need to yeah, put it in place? Yeah, it's basically just a, a tracking tool um, for facilities. There's not really any other um, uses for it besides in like a large or even a small-scale evacuation. Um, well, you mentioned emergency preparedness training. Now, is that, are the training, um, is the training offered to doctors and nurses and medical professionals, or does some of the training go to the community at large? Uh, we have a mix um, of courses that focus on um, professionals and lay people of all different levels. Um, certain classes that we help facilitate, like um, advanced burn life support, ABLS is a class for medical providers. Um, a lot of the trauma-focused courses that we help facilitate and coordinate are specifically focused on healthcare professionals, you know, RNs, PAs, MDs. Um, but then we also have courses that are open to all members of the community, like Stop the Bleed, um, and really are geared towards people of any educational level. So I wanted to ask you about the four different um, regional training centers. If something um, bad happened in, like, Buffalo, would the Syracuse Regional Training Center get tapped to help out? or um, As a, a whole, the RTCs function more as a resource for um, training for, like, non-emergent incidents, per se. Um, so I think if an incident happened at that level, they would be more looking for federal and state intervention rather than assistance oh, from another okay. RTC. Well, let me ask you about the uh, Health Emergency Preparedness Coalition and what it's working on toward the future. Do you have some ideas of some things that are coming? Uh, right now, really big initiatives for the CNY HEPIC involve um, cybersecurity due to recent incidences in the last few years with small rural hospitals that have experienced ransomware and different cyber attacks. Um, active shooter is obviously always a huge initiative for us. Um, and that ties into obviously the stop the bleed training, which is kind of a newer initiative as well as, um, the upcoming trauma reach conference and, um, trauma reach stands for rural EMS and community hospitals. And it's in coordination with Buffalo and Buffalo trauma and strong memorial trauma. And that's just a conference we have each May. Um, to kind of get trauma management teams together and discuss current issues um, and continue training there. And then we are really trying to extend um, a lot of our training to long-term cares. Um, I feel like, like in the past. nursing homes? Yes. Yep. Oh. Nursing homes or adult care facilities, uh, things of that nature, particularly for like e-fines training. Um, in the past, they've been sort of out of the loop of course, like through no fault of their own, um, but we're just trying to bring them more into the planning atmosphere. That makes sense. Well, you and I are speaking in late fall, early winter-ish, so um, I can't let you go without asking for some advice about winter preparedness. Um, can, you, can you tell us what we need to do to keep our cars ready for safe travel in the winter? Um, I think the most important thing is to always bring, you know, warm clothing, an extra blanket in the car. It doesn't take much time to throw one in the trunk. and that Just can be, keep one in the trunk. Yeah, it's just very important. Um, of course, to always drive in safe conditions. You know, there's no place where you need to go that's that important, where if the weather's truly terrible, just stay off the road. Um, always have a shovel 
And if you can get a road safety kit that can, most of them don't contain flares, but they can at least contain um, reflective devices to set out to indicate that you're on the side of the road. Um, a first aid kit. I carry, I call it a go bag in my car that has um, a change of clothing for the next day because I work, my commute's very long, so I have a change of professional clothing in case it's just too snowy to make it home. Um, and just pretty much... Well, and people, most people have cell phones these days, too. Um, But I'm remembering a few years back where there were a lot of people on the thruway that got Mm -hmm. caught in a snowstorm and ended up being on the thruway for hours stranded. So the cell phone really didn't help that much. It didn't. And that's why it's really important to have the resources to be self-sufficient for, you know, the time being when you're stuck or if you find someone else that's stuck, being able to help them is huge and this is just like a personal experience for me one thing my dad always pushed was having something in your car that can give you traction if you need it um i always carry kitty kitty litter Kitty litter in my car during the winter just the little things that can make things um easier in the winter and make a big difference between just being kind of cold on the side of the road and having a real emergency well keeping water in the car except that it would freeze Freeze. but maybe it's still good to have because it would you could thaw it somehow maybe if you needed to but um snacks um energy bars yeah snacks would be good if you can throw energy bars in your go bag um i know with water bottled water you do have to change it out every once in a while um it's not great to have it sitting around but of course in an emergency something it's something (laughs) for sure um and then there's a lot of resources on the new york state office of emergency management website regarding uh, winter and severe weather preparations, um, family planning kits, things of that nature. So if anybody wants to check that out, they are. So this the, might be a good time of year to just sort of get organized. Yeah, to stuff, get organized so. in general and have your evacuation plan as a family, all the critical plans that people don't really think of, but they become very important very quickly. So the New York State Office of Emergency Management website, and we can put a link to that on our healthlinkonair.org website as well. Yep. Um, We also have the CNYRTC website. Um, If you Google just CNYRTC, it'll come up, or there's a link to it on the Upstate page. And we have a lot of different resources regarding all types of emergency preparedness and emergency planning. So it's all on there as well. Well, good to know. My guest has been Kelsey Wagner. She's the program coordinator for the Central New York Regional Training Center. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink On Air. Next up, the mission to reduce health disparities and improve access to medical care. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink On Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today I'm speaking by phone with Dr. David Ansel, who graduated from Upstate in 1978, and now he's the Senior Vice President for Community Health Equity at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago. He's been taking care of people in Chicago for almost four decades. Thank you for chatting with me this morning, Dr. Ansel. Well, thank you for having me. Can we start with a definition of what health equity means? Yeah, uh, health equity means there are a number of different uh, definitions of health equity uh, put out by many different uh, organizations. And Robert Wood Johnson, for example, has one. Um, I kind of think of health equity in the following way. It's simply... Uh, how do we ensure that those who need more get more? Hmm. That the idea of equality uh, is is that everything is applied equally to everyone. But if somebody needs more 
or somebody needs less, equity is making sure people get the right dose of what they uh, they need. Uh, Robert Wood Johnson says that health equity means everyone has a fair and just opportunity to be healthier. So it's, it's not... a simple thing that, that they have a chance. So I was in a discussion this morning about uh, uh, colonoscopies for colorectal cancer and at our institution. We have higher no-show rates among patients who uh, are on Medicaid, for example. So um, what do you do in that situation? Well, equity would suggest is you have to try to understand why are people not making it for their screening. And if it's things like transportation or if it's child care or other things like that, in a in a equity-framed organization, you'd be thinking about the ways to solve those gaps that get in the way of uh, people's opportunity uh, to have a fair and just opportunity to be healthier. That's just, a, that's just an example. So it seems uh, like deeper than the, the notion of health equality. It seems yeah, like equity goes further. Yeah, if you think further. about it, uh, health equality means you know, people say, well, if you come to our place, everybody gets the same care. But what's wrong with that? Well, one is not true. We know that in studies of uh, uh, minorities uh, coming to health care or women versus men is that with the same set of doctors and the same set of symptoms, people don't get the same care. So that's, that's inequality. But it's also uh, we have inequitable care. Let me, uh, for example, uh, the uninsured don't get the same care. Right. Uh, oftentimes, they can't get in the door. People on Medicaid, uh, there are many doctors in, in a number of institutions that don't provide the same care for folks who are on Medicaid. Uh, it's where, when a decision about where you put your offices and clinics in hospitals, oftentimes poor neighborhoods or neighborhoods that have, quote, poor payer mix, uh, and there's poor people, uh, don't have the same access to clinics. Sometimes it may be that people don't have the transportation uh, uh, to get uh, to a place. So there's many ways in which equity is different than uh, equality. What I say about our health care system is we have an unequal health care system. Some are in and some are out. And then it's on top of it, it's inequitable. Well, how does a nation achieve health equity? Or is it possible for a nation to achieve health well, equity? Well, one, you have to decide that uh, equity is uh, uh, an important lens to look at how we're delivering uh how we're delivering uh, health care. Um, we're in a nation that has not yet decided, uh, though I think we're gradually on our way, that health care and the right to health care is a human right. Uh, that gets to the equality measure. Uh, Canada has a system like that, or Great Britain and Germany uh, have a system where uh, health care is considered a human right, and therefore there's an entitlement uh, to access, just like there's universal school, or uh, in our towns we have uh, roads and sewers uh, that can be used by everyone. Uh, not to say the right to a road is a human right, but um, w uh, we haven't decided that as a nation. But if we did, and there was universal health care, that would be equality. Everyone would have the same card and the same access to care. But there's still going to be gaps uh, uh, and we've found this not just in the United States, that uh, go for, actually from neighborhood to neighborhood there are gaps, but across the world, even in countries that have universal health care, there are some folks who are thriving and some folks who are not thriving, even with universal health care. And so what drives those other things are the social and structural uh, conditions, oftentimes neighborhood conditions that expose people I call it to the toxic stress of living uh, that uh, predispose people to, one, be exposed to a larger burden of disease, and then they have trouble accessing health care uh, afterwards. And those gaps in this country have to be addressed as well. So I think we, on the one hand, we have to address uh, the, uh, the need for universal uh, access to health care 
as a fundamental human right. And then we have to address the fact that there are some neighborhoods, the exposure to social determinants of health, like poverty, like uh, low education, like uh, stress and other things like that, 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 that in addition, uh, expose people to a burden of disease and then lead to per, poor health outcomes. So in, improving access and, and maybe universal health care, those are things that might kind of step toward health equity, but it, it's not enough. Yeah, but you have to also think it's what we're, what we're doing now I mean, uh, in my work at uh, Rush University Medical Center uh, in Chicago. We're beginning to ask people when they come in the door about things that could be getting in the way of their health, like do you have housing? You know, do you have affordable, safe housing? Do you have food? Do you worry about when your next meal uh, is going to come? Have you gone foodless because you couldn't pay for it? Is your electricity on? We found that we started screening our patients in Chicago, and I'm sure it's no different in, in Syracuse, that 30% of our patients screen positive to having one or more non-medical but a social determinant of poor health. So if you're a diabetic and you're on insulin and you don't have a home or you do have a home but the electricity is off and your insulin can't be in the uh, refrigerator, how are you going to achieve your health outcomes? Wow. Uh, so we're beginning to screen and folks around the country are beginning to do that and understanding that we have to not just treat the physical manifestations of health, but the social determinants of health. And just like there are social determinants of health, which are the conditions uh, in which we live, grow, learn, work, uh, uh, et cetera, there are social and structural determinants of inequity. Who in this country is much more likely to be uh, assigned to neighborhoods where there, the conditions are such that lead to worse uh, health outcomes. And in this country, it's poor people in general, but African-Americans, uh, Native Americans specifically, who are more likely to live under social conditions that lead to poor health. You're listening to Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. David Ansel. He graduated from Upstate in 1978, and today he's the Senior Vice President for Community Health Equity at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago. So what, uh, what becomes the role of a doctor when, if you're screening for these things and you find out that you have a patient who doesn't have adequate access to, to food or electricity, what do you, what do, you do about that? Uh, well, I wrote the, I wrote uh, a book called The Death Gap, How Inequality Kills, uh, which sort of lays out the problem, uh, not just in the United States, but around the world, uh, uh, and talks about potential solutions uh, for this work. So the premise of the book, and it comes out of being... 40 years as a doctor in Chicago, literally on one street in Chicago, since I left upstate. So 40 years ago, I graduated upstate, came to Chicago to become a doctor and have practiced for 40 years in one neighborhood. And I call that experience one street, two worlds, because there's two worlds of uh, neighborhoods and two worlds of health and health care. And what I could see through the eyes of my patients were uh, that it wasn't my medical care that made the difference. It was their social living conditions that were really impacting their health. And what that requires for doctors is to think about what are the upstream drivers for poor health and then what should we do as doctors and health systems uh, to address it. So uh, my medical center in Chicago, Rush, is taking health equity or community health equity on as a strategy. And the strategy says, if we're going to improve health, we're going to have to address the fact that there's these vast life expectancy gaps uh, between neighborhoods. Uh, and in Chicago, uh, the example that I give is if you live in the Gold Coast in Chicago, you can live to 85. But you go down the train line, the L tracks, 
three stops past my hospital rush in a neighborhood of Garfield Park, life expectancy is under 69 years. And the last time in the United States, life expectancy was under 69 was 1950. And people think of Chicago and they think of gun violence, but it's not gun violence. I say it's structural violence, the number one and two cause of death our heart disease and cancer. So it requires us to not just screen for the social determinants of health when people come into our offices, which you know, very few places in the United States are doing right now. Are you hungry? Do you have a home? Like what's getting in the way? Can you afford your medicines? Um, uh, what else is going on in your life that might be getting in the way of your health? But it does require us to go in the neighborhoods and figure out how can we as healthcare institutions and physicians and nurses have an impact on the conditions in the neighborhoods that um, are producing poor health. Because it is a fact in the United States that where you live dictates when you die. And uh, what we're seeing in, across the country is, is people dying prematurely. So I'll give you an example of the kinds of things that we've started to do when we took equity on. We said, how do we use the fact that Rush, my institution now, is the largest private employer on the west side of Chicago, a neighborhood of 500,000 people, to leverage our business of uh, units to hire locally, create career pathways, purchase locally, create new businesses off of our supply chain, uh, impact, invest in these neighborhoods, and volunteer in these neighborhoods. What can we do as a collective healthcare uh, institution while we begin to inquire of our patients about the conditions they're living under that can impact their health? Uh, It's big and bold, uh, but we've uh, made the goal uh, here to reduce the life expectancy gap by 50% by 2030. And the only way you can do that is by going, is, is viewing the role of doctors and health systems, not just to be within the four walls, but outside the four walls. Syracuse, the poor city in uh, New York, is would be a prime place to do this work. It sounds like it. Well, I read a biographical description that called you a health activist, and I wondered, you know, when you were attending medical school at Upstate, did you think that that's kind of where you were headed? Yeah, you know, uh, first of all, I knew I wanted to be a doctor, and uh, Upstate was just a great training place uh, to learn medicine. But when I got to medical school, I really struggled in my first year uh, because I could see that there were other drivers uh, uh, around health than medical care. And a group of uh, upstate medical students, including myself, got together and began to study the U.S. healthcare system. And all of us, I think, decided at that point in time that healthcare was a human right and we were going to, you know, dedicate our work to that premise. And you know, at that point in time, uh, I think the first inklings that I was going to be a health activist arose because, you know, if you don't like the way things are, you've got to do something to uh, change it. Uh, and, you know, along the way, I built my uh, practice and my academic career on the premise that the U.S. health care system was flawed. Uh, it was it was uh, structurally uh, problematic. We didn't have universal health care. And that, for me, as a doctor, needed to work on these things. And so I uh, evolved into becoming a health activist. And in fact, I describe myself that I'm a physician first. I'm a social epidemiologist. I got a degree in public health. Uh, but I'm also a health activist third. And while I've held different titles and uh, in different institutions, that's what drives my work. Wow. Well, interesting. It's been very uh, enjoyable to talk with you, and it sounds like you're doing some really meaningful work. My guest has been health activist Dr. David Ansel from Rush University Medical Center in Chicago. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, 
editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Teresa Wyatt, a poet from Buffalo, has written a book called Hurled into Gettysburg, a poetic meditation on that historic battlefield. She sent us a smaller but no less evocative subject in her poem, We Missed a Deer. One, we missed a deer on the slick drive home, a service tomorrow for a friend who said goodnight on Tuesday at Tai Chi, then died Friday. Two punch biopsies came back negative last week. The other spouse became a stage one suddenly. There are always mysterious beginnings that can hardly be measured. Some starry nights are more consequential than others. Crossing from here to there requires risk. Headlights will not always do their job. Two, but back to this morning, good news in the paper, more clinical trials, and mild temps follow a record summer drought. Oh, how I wish there could be an epic storybook-sized curse put upon the wickedly invasive. Then nothing much could grow. Ruthless cells would crash before taking root, stretch out on scorched lawns in August, burnt low, freeze under winter ice. Three, we are all fighting to break through something, need respite from weeds and glaring rays. Trust submerged bulbs will push up come spring, crack a warmer earth, audition among the blades of deep, smooth emerald. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, domestic abuse and violence. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes and other podcast sources by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.